Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor and writer Jake Johnson. Jake Johnson's made a career out of acting next to some of the top names in the business, and that's exactly how he likes it. From his vantage point, he's got the best seat in the house, and he has for years, watching people like Zoe Deschanel from New Girl, Tom Cruise in The Mummy, and from his new show, Stump Down, Kobe Smulders. All the while, he's living out a dream that started when he was a kid, watching shows like Cheers and Roseanne, and desperately wanting to be in them. Jake and his two siblings were brought up by their mother in a Chicago suburb. He wasn't a great student, but he lit up when he discovered writing and acting in high school. As he tells it, back then I was in a very tricky emotional place. But writing plays, I had total control and I loved it. Well, when you combine that with the praise he received from performing in the school sketch show, he knew he'd found his thing. Now Jake's 41 and he's still doing it. And his favorite part of the work is getting to play within the world of make-believe. It's why he's drawn to the sets of filmmaker Joe Swanberg, who's made three films with Jake, Drinking Buddies, Digging for Fire, and Win It All, and why he's turned off by micromanaging directors who kill the magic and overshoot scenes. Jake says, I'm not here for your final cut. I'm here for right now. Me and this other human being can act. Let us act and get the camera out of here. Hide it and let us go. Jake enthusiastically joins off-camera to talk about forging a relationship with his absent father, the rude awakening he got after dropping out of high school, and his stint as a degenerate gambler. Luckily, he was saved by New Girl. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Jake. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. I've watched the show a lot. I appreciate that. And, you know, we actually met once before a long time ago on New Girl because I got asked to photograph the whole cast right at the beginning for the poster or the advertising or whatever it was. And uh, I kind of owe you an apology, I think, because I get the call, and I've heard of Zoe Deschanel, obviously, and it was sort of her show. And, For sure. And then there's these three dudes I've never heard of before, and there they are. And, and I think as a busy photographer, and I come in, and I'm like, there's the talent. Those these are the dudes. These guys yes. are the dudes. <laughs> that, you know, and, and, and I got to thinking about this because I became such a fan of your work later after I saw Drinking Buddies. Thanks, and man. Let's Be Cops and all the Swanberg stuff. And it sort of gives you some insight into the way that actors get underestimated and, and the assumption that you just run around to auditions all day for 10 years until something happens and then you're there to say somebody else's lines. Right. You know what I mean? Totally. And when I got into your history a little bit, finding out how much of a writer you are, how you've gone through sketch and improv and all of that stuff, it makes you look at anybody that gets to that level and it's never an accident that someone yeah, totally. lands there. You know? I do. Anyway, it's nice to it's well, nice to tell you that and tell you what that's a fan really I nice to hear, man. Thank you. And it's funny because um, that was the feeling of that show, but there is also something I like being second tier. I like being in the shadows to somebody who like Zoe. Zoe had worked really hard her whole career. She was ready to be front and center. She was ready to grab the reins. She was ready for the joke. She was ready for the ad campaign. I like being next to that person. But I don't necessarily have that thing in me that I want to be that person. I really? like doing it for little ones. I like doing it for, you know, a Swanberg movie. But there's right. a lot of games to that that I like. But when you start getting to the bigger ones and you got, you know, major studios and big money, I have a lot of fun being behind that person, kind of in the shadows. But it's funny you say that because that feeling has been a lot of my career. 
where there's somebody who's really excited about somebody, and then I'm right next to that somebody. <laughs> and really, really, a, a lot. And it really deeply doesn't offend me. It's like, I like it. But also, I think for me, I, I play this game a little bit differently. I'm, and it's a, I don't know how to say it without saying it in the selfish ways, but I'm playing it for myself. I'm doing it because it's a heck of a way to spend a Tuesday. And it explodes my mind that where I came from and who I was and my family and journey, I'm now on a TV set next to Zoe Dachanel and some guy named Max and some guy named Lamorne, and we're doing bits. And the bits feel like the bits I did with my brother or my friends growing up. So for me, it's, I like the adventure, I like the journey. I don't want it to stop, but I like being in that second tier, because when you're that first tier, it's like you owe a lot. Right. You're given a lot, but you owe a lot. And I don't feel personally, and I know a lot of my friends who are bigger and more famous, they feel like they owe their fans something. They're doing something, they will stop at the airport and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they, oh, like, I did a movie with Tom Cruise. Right. We were in Africa. The um, Namibian... Is that a risky business? A risky business, yeah. <laughs> I was his dad. And... <laughs> but the film council... You did the mummy with Tom yeah, Cruise. Yeah, we did the mummy with Tom Cruise. And the uh, Namibian film council came out to say hi. So the AD, we were shooting, buildings blowing up. They're like, they would like to say hi. Well, I, I wanted to go like this. Hello. I'm here working. I'm jumping off buildings Hi. with this maniac. <laughs> Hi, nice to see you. What do I want to do with the film council? Tom goes like, Jake, we should go talk to the council. And I'm like, okay, I mean, literally all day has been the craziest day of my life. I've been with you riding horses, jumping off. What are we going to say? And he goes, just come with me. We sat and he talked to them for about 45 minutes. Gave him a whole presentation, a big talk. Gave a part of himself right. that I thought was really cool and it meant a lot to them. I don't necessarily do that or really care to do that. Because I'm on set with Tom Cruise, not because I read that script, because I didn't. Because I wanted to be with Tom Cruise for four months, and I wanted to see what it was like to be in his gym and to be with that man. You read it eventually, though. I never read the full script. You didn't? No. Because it didn't matter. Because I was with him, and he was driving it. So I read our scenes, and I knew what we needed. And Tom's like, I'm going to want you in the gym with me, and we're going to do this. And I'm like, I want four months next to this guy. I want to feel what it's like to be with that level movie star. Right next to him. Right next to him. But everybody's looking at him. Right. But I feel like my career is a lot of times, I have the best seat in the house where I'm like watching Tom and there's all the crew, but I'm seeing the performance right here. And I'm like, man, Tom, you are a wild guy. And then when they call cut, it's me and him where we walk back somewhere and I go, how do you feel? You just did a wild thing. Like we would do a stunt and then I could be with him before the stunt people came and be like, you liked that? <laughs> and that's really neat to me, more than me being like, I did the mummy. If that works, I get to have my own franchise. I never want a franchise. I have no interest. Right. Pass. I wouldn't even take a meeting on it. I have zero desire. But I would do somebody else's if I think they're interesting and the journey could be fun. Do you know the thing that's interesting about that is that it takes an incredible amount of persistence, confidence, delusion, work ethic to get to the level where you are. Right. And I think that oftentimes those qualities come with that insatiable desire to be in that number one chair. Right. You know what I mean? Totally. And I think yeah, that's with some people I could say, I could call BS on that and say, right. you know, that's, that's defensive. But with you, I don't get that sense at all. I really get the sense that, that you didn't come here to conquer the world. You came here to actually... Be in the world. Yeah. But yeah. I, I remember watching TV as a kid and... 
not understanding how life could be, and like watching, you know, from Cheers to Roseanne to any of these shows, and really wanting to be in it, and not understanding that you have to be an actor and you audition, and the Cheers set wasn't a real bar. You didn't understand any of that. That shit was real to me. And that was a real bar with a real group of people, and their timing was hilarious. But I just wanted to live in Cheers. Do you think that you got hoodwinked in some ways? Because I feel like TV did this to me a little bit, where things like the Brady Bunch set expectations for the kind of relationship you could have with your parents. And and I wonder if part of that wanting to be in that world was this wish fulfillment that this is how life is supposed to be, and somehow I don't have this. Yeah, my real life never felt in a way where I got to, it never felt exactly how I wanted it to feel. It It was great, it was good, it was what it was, but it never felt like that. That's the thing I want. I want to not have anybody's real drama or tension or ups and downs or people's pains. I want to walk into a bar and I want to be in those bits and I want to be one of the players there. But that would be really fun. But I never thought until embarrassingly late that like those actors went home. And so like, had like problems. Two years ago, you figured this out. Well, I mean, kind of late, and probably in my twenties, like without giving it thought. Because then right. I got into writing, and I was like, oh, I could create my own world. And then I was like, oh, this is really fun. This is really neat. Because when you're on a set and you're shooting, it really is magic, and it's div- it's yeah. it's not. You're not on planet Earth. You will create. I like really naturalistic stuff because I like things to feel like it's real. But there is nothing real. And so you're like, create this fake world and all those emotions become real. And if you have a best friend in a movie, well, it blurs and you start feeling like we're friends. And then you are friends. And if you have a love interest, a part of you falls in love. And that's real. Like, it's not really real, but you get to create this fake reality that for me, when done right, is so fun. Yeah, yeah. And that is the fantasy that I still like to play where like, I get really annoyed when directors are overshooting and overcovering and it's all about post and editing, and you know, there's some genius involved. We got a good thing. We need a single of everything we've Shut already the covered. Fuck up! You're killing the magic. Yeah. yeah, I'm not here for a lot of the projects. I don't watch. I'm not here for your final cut. I don't give a fuck after the studio and the network give their notes. Oh, I don't care. I'm here for right now. So let us at least. You wrote the scene. It's three and a half pages. Me and this other human being can act. Let us act in it and get the camera out of here. <laughs> Hide it, motherfucker. <laughs> Let us go. Because when it goes, it starts feeling really fun. And that's, you know, what I, that's why I like to play it. That's so interesting because what you're describing is, you know, you mentioned Joe Swanberg a minute yes. ago. And for people that don't know, Joe Swanberg and you have collaborated on three films, yeah. right? Drinking Buddies, Digging for Fire. And, this, and Win It All. And Win It All. Yeah. And in those films, those are improvised movies that you, you have an outline to, yes. but you do not have a script for. Yeah. And I'm curious, are his sets where you're happiest as well, a person? Uh, well, not as a working. person, yeah. Well, um, but I just say, I don't mean that defensive. I just, because I have my, my home and my work, and they feel very different. Um, my home has now been something I've spent a lot of years building, and it's like, oh, that's, a, that's now the fantasy. I'm like, that thing works. So then I had to get to, I got to make sure I also enjoy work. Because it started getting, the fantasy, the thing I got hoodwinked on, or what is it, hoodwinked? Hoodwinked. Is that, this business a lot of times isn't as much fun as I thought it was gonna be. 
And that was really disappointing. What's the picture that comes to your head when you when you say that sentence? Hours upon hours on set, people being tense, uh, the producers and directors of Video Village being insecure, the actor or actress I'm with um, getting direction that puts them in the head, the crew not seeing their family being tired, nobody being sure what we need to get, them thinking, we need to make sure we get this covered so we don't get in trouble by the studio or the network or whatever the thing is. So they're going, okay, you know what we should do? Let's actually shoot this again. Jake, could you say this? And I'm like, in what context? Just trust us, we might need it. That to me is like, oh, I, I never thought it would be this. Right. If I knew it would have been this, I would have done something else. This is not why I'm playing. Um, and so when I first met Joe, he asked me to do Drinking Buddies. And I met with Joe and Joe blew my mind because like a lot of us, he's battling his own depressions or whatever it is, but he creates his sets as a way to make himself happy. So he was like, so I could tell you're burnt out. And he's like, yeah, the business isn't what you thought. And I'm like, no. And he's like, my set won't be like that. And I'm like- Tell me the chronology of Drinking Buddies in relation to New Girl. Uh, it was after season one. Okay. So I met with him during that. And, and season one was intense. It was 16 hours a day, five days a week. On weekends, we're doing press. Um, you know, literally leaving on a Friday, getting on a plane, going somewhere, getting back. It just felt like, oh, this is everything. Photo shoot after shooting, after press, after table read, after reshoot. Where I was like, whoa, mama, (laughs) this shit ain't it. And then I met Joe and Joe said, you know, he pitched his way of doing it. And he said, you know, I was like, all right, so how about this? Let's say there's a day, because this improvised thing, I go, I don't want to be in something that, that's trash. Right. You know, to go make something that's improvised. I've seen improvised movies. They're shot. They look like shit. The performances are all over the place. And I'm like, then I got to go to the film festival, the film festivals with it. Then I got to sell it. I don't want to sell a bad car. So I need to know if I'm not in control, who's in control? And I need to know that person in control is smart and going to try really hard and be nice to people. And I then have to hope they're talented. Right. <laughs> And that's the wild card. And even if they're talented, that this particular thing one, could work. Yeah. Uh, and that I'm going to enjoy my days. And so when I talked to Joe, he gave me his pitch and I told him, I go, you, uh, my father was a salesman. He owned a car dealership. And I was like, I come from salespeople. I go, you feel like a salesman to me. And I go, but I don't know if you're selling me a lemon or the deal of a lifetime. I go, if it's the deal of a lifetime, I'm with you and I'll, I'll be loyal to you forever. And if it's a lemon, I'll hate you forever. And day three, day four, I was like, yeah, man, I like how you do this. He, when it's improvised, it's kind of improvised. He just allows everybody to be part of that creation moment. But you don't just show up, turn the camera on, and whatever happens, happens. Right, but after Drinking Buddies, you did two other films where you were way more involved in the outlining process. So for Win It All, we actually did write a script. And we had a three-act movie. We had it all, beat it out. But then we would say to our actors do you want to see the scene that we've written before or do you want to talk it out? Because I was in every scene of that movie, so I could drive the story. So rather than say, this is how we saw you know, Keegan-Michael Key, this is how we see this bit. Right, when we first see Keegan-Michael Key in Win yeah. It All, he's your sponsor. Yes. And you're trying to tell him it's a good idea to, right. to, to take this bag of money that this drug dealer gave you to hold, take That's 500 right. out of it, go gamble it, and make some money. Right. So after reading about this process and everything, my curiosity is, how does that scene get built? Right. How much does written. Keegan know? How much does he want to know? So that scene had been written, and we had done, I personally had done countless drafts on it to find the rhythm of the bit of 
you know, you're an idiot, I'm not an idiot. Where, how far we could push that thing. When Keegan got there, we had it and we read it a couple times. Then we literally got rid of the scripts and when we started shooting, I would probably on the first line do something different to let the other actor know. Now there's no net. Like one of the moves I really like to do as an actor is like if I'm doing press with somebody and you know you get asked the same question all day. Right. Well, as soon as they ask it, I'll answer the way that they're about to answer. Just and give them a smile to know like, let's just fuck around with each other. Just be with each other. And then it's at least fun for us. And so with somebody like a scene like that, we would have it memorized. But then as soon as they call action, I would say a different line so that he's forced to react. Because when you got talent like that or Joe Latruglio, well, these are racehorses. I'd rather see them run full speed than try to remember what I wrote on my computer six months ago. Well, well we know what happens. Yeah, that's the question. Like, how much control do you want to have versus how much you want right. to see what happens? Yeah. Well, <laughs> but guys like that and pros know what the scene's about. So they will run, but they will run really hard where we're going. And then what always happens with Swanberg movies is these actors are now writing on the spot and giving you perfect buttons where you'll say on a scene that they didn't see, can we show you the scene we wrote? We literally had the same ending, but different wording. They're like, yeah, that's how it felt. Uh, Del Close, a Chicago improv guru. Yeah, did, he did, wrote the book, right? Yeah, he wrote the book. He did an old improv that I kind of love as this idea, but he got some of his best improvisers on stage in front of a bunch of students, and they did a whole scene in the kitchen. They didn't do anything to describe what the kitchen looked like, what the walls were, anything. They then asked the audience what the kitchen looked like, and about 85% saw like light yellow walls where the cabinets were, but there were no references to it. That's just what they saw, because that's what that fucking kitchen was. Right. A good scene is about something, and when you're really in it, that's where it's going, unless you're playing for the wrong reasons and you want to be the star, and then you do some weird monologue or you know, do a move, like actors who act too much, will all of a sudden like, take a handkerchief out and, you know, or like light a cigarette in the coolest way, when you're like, cool it with all that. This is building somewhere, and we could either write it or we could find it, but what I like to do is write it before so that Joe and I and our camera operator know where we're going. Then the best is when the actors get to find it organically. That's when you feel like, you know, Joe always does a thing when he's really excited on set where he'll go like, ooh, and that's when you're like, ooh, we're cooking now. This is the thing. Right. So I try to find that as much as I can, but in bigger productions, it gets harder and harder because there's more people and people are scared and they want to shoot pieces. And I don't like shooting pieces. What do you think happens on a film like a Swanberg film that can't happen with the script and with the sort of status quo in place of how to shoot things and cover things? The freedom of it. There is a magic and a discovery on set and the whole game of a Swanberg thing is we kind of know what the product is. Joe and I finance these movies ourselves. Oh, you do? Yeah, we, we just write the checks because he explained how he sees the business of it. I like it. So Joe taught me that whole side and then said, we don't have to go to agents. We don't need anybody's approval. We don't need to go to studios. We don't need to pitch financiers. We're the producers. Right. So we did Drinking Buddies. And first of all, Olivia Wilde was so good. Anna Kendrick, Ron Livingston. That movie was just a dream. Yeah. It was just so fun acting with all those human beings. And I loved Joe as the captain. And I thought when that one ended, um, I was like, man, if you can cut this into anything worth a damn, if this is a C minus, I'm with you. Because that was such a pleasant three weeks of my life. 
And I was like, I will do that again for sure. And then I saw it. He brought it over. My wife and I watched a screening he did in our house. Screening. He put it on my TV. But we watched it, and my wife looks at me after. She's like, I think that movie's great. And I was like, Joe, I think you're a great director because I hadn't seen his movies before. Poor Joe's like, I've he's been like, telling the guy the whole like, time. I know, dumbass. I made like 20 <laughs> movies. But so then when we did Dig In for Fire, we got like 10 actors willing to play from Sam Rockwell to Brie Larson, all these killers. So what Joe said was, whatever somebody says they want to try, let's just throw it into the mix. And we did. And so the movie cuts together. It's nice. It's not my favorite movie, but it was really great to see all these people. But so for the third one, I was like, I actually want an old school A story. I want a three act structure. I want my inciting event on page 10. I want my first act to end on 20 to 25. I want to turn on page 50. And Joe's like, fun. So then we're like, so what story is that? And he had the idea about the bag. Right. He's right. like, man, there's something. I like a mystery. And he's like, visually, I want to see the bag. And then I had been a degenerate gambler. So I was like, man, I like the idea of telling a gambling story. And then we just started building. You were a degenerate gambler. I was, yeah. At what point in your life? When I first moved out to L.A., I worked down in the casinos. I was at the old Hollywood Park in Inglewood. Really? Yeah. I worked for a company where I'd play with their money um, and then just got deeply into it. Was well, it sort of a hustle? Not, I mean, it was right on the line. <laughs> you know, it's the casino world. Like, everything, like, the pit bosses wear suit jackets. Why? <laughs> right. What are they, an accountant? These guys are pimps. <laughs> you wearing a jacket? Oh, he, hey, that's the pit boss. Get the fuck out of here. These are cr- they're all thieves. But that playing the game, the big ups, the big downs, watching people win really big, lose, watching people who have lost, who stay, when the group leaves and it's me and that person, and it's now 4 a.m., and I go, hey, man, I'm sorry you lost, man. And they're like, fuck, man, I always lose. To then go like, why do you keep coming back? And then what slowly happened to me was I would start dreaming and my, the currency in my dreams were chips. Really? And I was like, oh, neat. I was like, huh. I was like, in my dream, I was at a bar and I played with a poker chip. And then when I would leave work, I'd go to Indian casinos because that energy of playing up and down, I was like, well, I want to be in that party. And then it, I realized I'm working eight hours at a casino, spending 10 hours in a casino on my own, sleeping as many hours as I can, going back to work. And I was like, yeah, this is not the best. Did you ever get to a place where you were actually in financial trouble? Um, no, because New Girl happened. <laughs> I mean, I, I was Just never, in time. Well, I was never losing huge because I can play poker. Right. So I could always then grind out on a poker thing. But I, I couldn't really supplement my income. But what happened was I was playing a lot. And then quite literally, I, I got New Girl. And those hours were so crazy that I just didn't have the window. I wasn't, I've always taken this craft pretty seriously, so I'm not gonna leave work and go sit at a casino because then I'll be dog shit the next day. And I'm like, I can't be on four hours of sleep with a little bit of booze on my breath. I'll right. get eaten up here. <laughs> and if I get eaten up and I get fired, I don't think I get to play again. Yeah. But with Joe, I'm like, man, there's such a fun world. So when Joe would come to LA, I'd take him to all the casinos. And we'd go to the bike casino and sit at a table and have a beer and he's like, oh my God, I love this. So we're like, let's build it. And then we built all those, the casinos in that are all fake in the movie. But then playing in that space, he'll let you do a take for two hours. All those poker scenes, we just played. All those extras we gave chips to. Now people aren't playing for real money, but we were drinking real beer and we were just playing. And I'm like, man, it was so fun. What I hear you saying is that you try to create film environments that like your Cheers thing, they really yes. they really do feel real, and the, and Swanberg gets you as close to real, your as you real can, life that's as right. possible. It's the most fun. 
Well, I think that's, you know, I admire that you still search for that because when we're kids, none of us imagines working totally. as, you know, we, we imagine the freedom we can have once we become adults and we're not being told what to do. That's right. And it sounds like what you still want to create in your work environment Absolutely. is that feeling of being a kid. When I started writing plays, I was in the end of my high school, early college, and I was in a very tricky emotional space. But plays I had total control of, and I loved it. And I could just sit down and write. And I would write from 8 p.m. till 6 a.m. I'd be listening to Dylan, and I could create a fictional world, but I knew all the characters. And I knew, and sometimes you would feel like a character would walk in, and I wasn't even controlling him. And it would be like, well, that's of course what they would say. And I'd have a soft outline, but I could write the whole thing and just live in it. So you would have the experience, actually, as you were writing, where it started writing itself. It started writing itself. Okay, let's back up a little bit, because yeah. I'm so curious about that. I wanted to ask you, in relation to your desire to be in these sets that feel like real life, if there's a trait from childhood where you go, oh, it makes total sense that that's the kind of work I gravitate towards. Right. Because I am curious about the way you grew up and stuff, and I, and I just wonder if there's some picture you could give me of when you were yeah. a kid. So there's, a, there's two quick things that pop in my head. When I was growing up, if I used to I used to play like board games and darts and stuff like that, and I used to play by myself and be different characters. And it was the '80s, so a lot of times it was like USA versus Russia, right? Um, and it would be like you know it would be high stakes. And my mother used to always laugh because she would say, "You're the only kid I know who could be playing by themselves but still lose." Because <laughs> if I was playing a board game and it was USA versus Russia, and I felt like I was USA, when it was Russia's turn, I would be trying my hardest as Russia to beat USA. And then when I was back to USA, I would be like, well, that's a hell of a move. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm in a little bit of trouble here. So I could always play this fake game. And then when I first saw, I saw war movies too early. You know, in the 80s, Vietnam movies were everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I just saw them too early. And it just spooked me out. So I would play make-believe where I would pretend I was a POW in my room. Like, and I moved my bed, there were drawers here, so I could lay under my bed where I couldn't move. So I would have to prepare myself for when inevitably I went to Vietnam, inevitably was a POW, so that I could know how to do it. But I, I would quote unquote play POW. Now it wasn't fun to play. Would it get real for you? For sure, it was a nightmare. Really? Yeah, it was really intense. Now mind you, I was a kid, so I was making up the rules of what war was, but while I was in it, it felt shockingly real and shockingly intense. And that was a side of myself that, to this day, I've never, you know, there's sides of yourself you grow out of or you shun. Well, I've always liked that about myself. When I'm alone, I'm not bored. I can make shit up and play and have fun and, you know, goof off. And I'm like, well, that's what this work is. So when we get away from that, I don't know what the fuck we're doing. So that's why I'm not like a Shakespearean actor. And what I mean by that is, some actors, which I, who I really respect, love the words. And it's the words. You don't find, it, find the words. The words will inform you. The words don't inform me. The eyes of the other actor inform me more than the words. So I like the words. The words got us there. But while I'm playing, I'm not like, you know, the writer put a comma here. <laughs> I'm going to really examine this comma. I'm going to pause. Yeah. And then the next word was, and then. I, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I feel like I know what the intention is, but... Now we're here. Right. And so that I now have to try to handpick projects knowing, and I don't like to take a job before I've talked to the bosses to say, like, I don't want you disappointed. 
but this is how I like to do it. And it's not like, and if it doesn't work that way, fine. I don't want to do it your way. And at this point in my life, I don't have to. So you feel pretty comfortable being able to tell people. Oh, for sure. This is just this is what, what I, I do. Yeah. If you want something else, there are so many talented actors who can do it. There's a line of dudes around my look who are great, who can do it, who were trained, who are at Juilliard, who will technically give you every single word. And when you go, great, the sixth line in that paragraph, can we speed that up? If you say that to me, I'm like, man, we're speaking different languages. You're missing everything I'm trying to do. And now I'm checking out a little bit. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Quip. You know, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, you've heard me talk about Quip and my whole family uses it. And when you're a dad and you're trying to get your kids to brush, you realize the importance of creating healthier habits for oral health. And that's exactly what Quip focused on when they created their system. It was created by dentists and product designers to focus on that very thing. And like anything else in life, if we can develop good habits, then we're more likely not to stray from them. And Quip makes it easy to develop good brushing habits. And if you haven't tried Quip yet, what they are is a subscription toothbrush system where they automatically deliver brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule. And the brush itself is state-of-the-art, space-age, and very cool-looking. Looks like a cross between, like, an Apple product and a NASA product. And it comes with this amazing travel case that doubles as a sanitary holder for the toothbrush. So when you get to a hotel or wherever you are, you can stick the holder up on the mirror and the toothbrush stays off of that sink. The battery inside lasts for the entire subscription time, so you never have to worry about running out of battery. And Quip's sensitive vibrations with the built-in timer guide gentle brushing for the dentist-recommended two minutes with 30-second pulses, ensuring an even clean. These thoughtful features make brushing something you actually want to do twice every day. And not only do I use the Quip toothbrush, I use the Quip toothpaste. And I really like it. It doesn't taste too sweet or too tangy or too medicine-y. And you can use just a small amount in your brush. So it lasts the entire time too. So every three months you get this package in the mail and it has everything you need for your brushing. My kids love it. I love it. And if you haven't tried Quip yet, now is a great time. Because for off-camera listeners, Quip starts at just $25 and you'll get your first free refill at getquip.com slash off-camera. This is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better. But you have to go to getquip.com slash off-camera to get your first refill free. So go right now to getquip, that's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash off-camera. And now back to the show. I read that you quit high school when you were a sophomore. I did, yeah. So tell me about that, because I'm sure when you're a sophomore, that sounds like a great idea. Because had I had the option to quit, sophomore year may have been (laughs) the depths of my misery as a human being. That's right. So what happened freshman year to make you, like, quit? You know, it was tricky. And it's a period of time that I talked to my mom about, because it was really me and her. It wasn't just I quit. She and I had big talks about it. Your dad wasn't around, right? No, he, my dad left when I was left or kicked out when I was two and a half, and reemerged when I was about seventeen. I would see him occasionally. Okay. But he had substance abuse problems, and he's now sober, and we're very close. Okay. But I felt like what happened my sophomore year of high school, which now as a father and a forty-one-year-old, it's way different for me to look at. Right. Now I'm like, Mom, you're nuts, man. What were we doing? Uh, but I'm glad she did it because it changed my arc. So my sophomore year, I had gotten really bad grades my whole life. I never cared. 
I never studied anything. I truly believed school was an opportunity to compete with the teacher for attention. And it, it wasn't as if I was trying to be a class clown. I quite literally thought that's what you're there for. You're now surrounded by peers. You're all together. Who cares what the teacher's saying? It's so boring. It's a classic rebellion. Yes, but it was like so fun too. And then when you could say something funny, I still remember heads turning and smiling of like your peers. Right. And the feeling it would be of like, great. And then finding, I would always have a buddy who was funny too. When they would say something, just dying laughing. In fourth grade, I went to the principal's office every single day. They sent another friend and I to the school, a therapist, to figure out like, why are you getting in so much trouble? Um, and I, I never knew, my mom couldn't crack it. And then my sophomore year, I was uh, failing, getting Ds and Cs and Fs and didn't care. And um, essentially I had a, a report to do and I told my mom I didn't want to do it. And she said, when are you gonna do it? And I said, I'm never gonna do the fucking thing. And she goes, so why would you ever go back to school if you're never going to do the work? And I go, I'm not. What do you think her angle was? <laughs> I think she knew. Was she trying to call your bluff? or No, was she... I think she knew I, I wasn't going after my abilities or my talents. My mother's always had a lot of faith in me. My mother and I, even as kids, would always have these like really big, deep talks. And we've always liked each other. And then she would go like, I don't know why you're acting like such a loser. Like, why do you think it's cool to like smoke and drink? Like, do you want to be a bum? Like, you can see there's bums. There's losers. <laughs> We got some in our family. Like, you can be that pretty easily. I wonder what her perspective was based on your father's history. Right. Like, there must have been some fear there, like. I think it was more her siblings. She comes from uh, an Irish Catholic family, grown, raised in basically the projects of Chicago, Irish Catholic tough. And a lot of them died. A lot of them had substance abuse. A lot of them were in and out of jail. And my mother, when she met my dad, they, you know, he had a little bit of money. She moved to the really nice suburbs, but we were kind of a little bit uh, outsiders in this community because right. of her. And right. she's like, but I don't want that for you guys. You three fit in. I don't, like her thought was, I'll swallow the bomb and I'll, I'll jump on the bomb and die so you guys can have a great thing. And then I think with me, she was like, I can't believe we did all this and you're acting like, a loser. So you want to act like a loser? Be a loser. Drop out. You want to see what it feels like. And my uncle Eddie at the time, who was um, in jail, was living with us. He went to jail from Florida and had to stay with us. So she's like, all right, you don't go to school. You work for Eddie. And oh, So she was tough love. She was tough. And so Eddie was hanging neon signs in Chicago, but he was always like a small town crook and would always do bad work and we'd have to like run when the owners were mad. And it sucked. So say a couple months into working for Eddie, what was your self-image? Low. Yeah. It, it was, um, I thought when I dropped out it was cool. You know, who's the guy in the peach pit from 902 and no Dylan? Yeah. I thought I was kind of like a Dylan. I was like, pretty badass. And very quickly the suburb I was from and the school I was in turned on me. I was not the, like the bad boy. I was the loser. <laughs> and I didn't expect that. And then working with my Uncle Eddie, you know, I didn't grow up with a dad, I grew up with women. So. Even though my mother was tough love, she was always sweet tough love. My Uncle Eddie was a dick. And he was the first guy that around my mom, he would say like, oh yeah, I'll be with Jake. Come on, me and the fucking kid will be fine. And then when we were alone, he would go, you're a loser, you're not going back, you'll never graduate. And I would have thoughts of like, 
this is hurting my feelings. Yeah. I do not like this. But then he was my boss. And you would always have a thing like, well, I'm in school, I'm doing it, but I didn't have anything. So it just felt bottom, bottom, bottom. And I God. told my mom very clearly, next year I want to go back to school. So I went back to my high school and I repeated a year. You did? Yeah. I went back, humble, and was like, I got to figure something out. What I figured out was acting and writing. And all right, that's my thing. Like, I like to write. Uh, my buddy Billy, a good friend of mine still, a guy who just produced my pilot, uh, he was directing a comedy in the high school, and he's like, I'll cast you for your audition, do your Uncle Timmy. My Uncle Timmy was a drunk, and every year on my birthday, he would call and tell me the same joke. He goes, just do Timmy talking to you, I can get you in the show. So I did the play, teachers all of a sudden liked me, people said I was doing great, and I'm like, all I did was like get laughs in a sketch show? And I was like, this I like. And that was 16, and now I'm 41 and still doing that same thing. Did you ever feel like you came close to going down a path that you couldn't turn around and come back from? I was looking back probably, but at the time, no. Um, because most likely, I think if I was raised in a bad neighborhood, uh, you know, I, this country is so, it's so financially dependent on how many breaks you get. Yeah. Because uh, I was breaking the law, I broke into cars. A friend and I broke into someone's house once. Um, but there was something about it where it all felt like kid gloves. Felt like bowling with like, you know, those fake gutters. Where it's like, I could play badass, but if I was a kid from the wrong side of the tracks that didn't have white skin, I don't know if my story would have ended with so many accolades and, you know, right. clear paths to success. Yeah. How much do you attribute uh, your father's absence as, as fueling some of the, some of the lost yeah. nature that you that you had uh, I do know that I had a lot of anger there and I fueled that professionally for a long time and it really stopped when my kids were born yeah but I also used to have hatred for the authority so if the authority was cool like Joe oh man I love you but if the authority was like great this is really nice so I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that and I need you to sit there there was an anger that would be in me that was like man fuck you, that I, I didn't know why it was so intense. And then it was a chip on the shoulder of, you don't think that's right, let me show you. And then there was this, this, this rage and this anger that, you know, my kids broke. And I do think a lot of that was probably about wanting my dad around and he wasn't around. Was it a lack of trust of, like you could see when someone wasn't being straight with you or? It's tricky. It's, yeah. What I was always mad about was, how dare you fuck up this precious thing? How dare you ruin the thing I want? Right. How dare my dad not be there and ruin the thing that could have been? We could have had a family like that. How dare you do that? But the other side is, they were also trying to do their job, and the people around me weren't as mad. So I'm like, oh, that created a lot of problems for me. Right. Were you the sort of the typical divorce kid where, where parents, like your dad would say he was gonna show up and then yeah, not. Or... Totally. But, but here's, the, here's the catch, and I gotta give my dad credit. Um, Cause he did, he did a shitty job until I was 17. Uh, but what the man did, and looking back into anybody watching this, and I've tried doing this with podcasts, cause there are people right now who are not seeing their kids. And a lot of it is complicated. If the wife hates you, and the mom hates you, and then the kids hate you, it's hard to keep making that effort when they don't want you there. And you're dealing with your own shit, and then you show up, 
the mom makes it hard for the kids to see you or the dad makes it hard if it's the mom, I'm not doing a gender thing here, but when the other person makes it hard and then the kids follow whoever they're with and now this whole group hates you. And what my dad did was at 17, he called me up and he said, I want you to let you know, I'm in rehab, I was in a, a cocaine addict, I was a dad and I go, I know, and he goes, and I'm very sorry and I'm going to make it up to you. I punished that man for, oh yeah, for years, for years, every chance I got. Like, How would you punish him? I wouldn't ever let him enjoy the party. I wouldn't ever let him feel like his apology meant something to me. Like when I started getting successful and my dad would be like, this is the greatest. I would never talk to him about it. I would never so let him in the fun. What was the perception of how he wronged you that you had to be mad at him for? Well, I grew up, I was a, a big sports fan. I loved Chicago sports. My brother wasn't, my sister wasn't, my mother couldn't care less. We had one TV in our house and every once in a while my mother would think we were addicted and cut the cord. If it was Monday night football and the Bears were on and I was thinking about it all week, my sister said, I want to watch another show. My mother didn't know how to do the math on it, so she would say, everybody gets 30 minutes. And I was like, it's just not, it's just not the way it works. You can't do 30 minutes. And then she's like, yeah, but you can't have three hours. And I'm like, I'll give you all tomorrow. But in my house, sports weren't valued. My dad was a diehard fan and was literally going to Bears games, was friends with players, was hanging out with Scottie Pippen of the Bulls, would go to Cubs games and not take me. Oh, God. So I would know he was going because the occasional time we'd come, he would talk about it. Or you'd see him on TV. Well, not for, but, but I would see him in uh, car commercials with athletes. So I was like, motherfucker, let me just come. I don't care if you're drunk. We'll sit on your couch. I just quite literally want to watch the game, but I can't go to a bar because I'm nine. <laughs> I just want to watch the game. We don't have to talk. I got nothing to say to you either. Let's just stare at the game. So there was always this thing of like, well, homie, that would have been nice. And so when the tables got turned and he was saying, I'm in a lot of pain from my actions and a father needs a son as much as a son needs a father, a mother needs a son, all of it. I would say, great, but I'm not giving you anything. And then after years of that and years of his consistency and years of him just taking it and taking it and taking it, all of a sudden I would slowly be like, how you doing, man? And then he told me his story and I got to know him and I got to hear his childhood and then he got to hear mine and I wasn't nice about it. So I wouldn't say things to protect his feelings. It wouldn't be like, well, you know, it was okay, but I can be a dick. And so I'd go, yeah, and that really hurt, and it really hurt because of you. Yeah, that really sucks. He'd go, I'm sorry. I go, you've said that enough. This isn't right now about you saying sorry again. I'm just telling you, that sucked, and that was you. Well, you made it hard on him. You made it hard on him. Yeah. But he never quit. So like eight, nine years ago, I'm in my mid-30s, just sitting with a man. We watched every Cubs game together one summer. We text every Bears game. Finally, I'm like, not only do I like you, but this is what having a dad is. So that thing that I missed, this is it. It's pretty great. I like it. So my only thing to anybody who's not seeing their kids in Wanu, just don't quit. There, it could like it's quite literally that broken thing between he and I is fixed, and it really is his consistency and taking his lumps, which I gave him. But I don't have ang- I don't have lumps to give him anymore. I don't want to hurt him. Right. Like he would always want me to call him dad, and I'd always call him by his nickname Croco. I'd put him in the phone, Croc, and he would say, you know, for one fucking time, you can call me dad. And I'd go, all right, Croc. And then he'd go, like, I love you. And I'd be like, this was fun. And I would know what I was doing. 
And then there's a day where I'm like, all right, Dad. And he's like, what the fuck? I'm like, well, this is how I feel. He's like, this is an amazing day. And I'm like, well, you've earned it. You're my dad. This is the thing. Um, and so that's been really, you know, nice. Wow. He probably thought for a long time he screwed up so bad. So, no one wants it that, anyway. That's right. And then his own, the, the person's own, and kids don't know this about their parents, but like, you know, I saw this, there's this great Fresh Prince where Will Smith is mad at his dad. And LeBron James tweeted it out a couple years ago. Every time I see it, I get choked up. But Will Smith is being all mad. And then he's like, I just want to know, like, why you don't love me? And what kids don't realize is they do love you, but they're going through their own shit. And when you get older and you get to see your parents as humans, I'm like, oh, dad, I know you now. You didn't have a chance in your 30s. Right. <laughs> you know, like me at 41, if I knew you at 41, I would think you were a mess. I've got those friends. Yeah. Where I'm like, oh, you were just that guy. But as a kid, you want your parents to be these godlike creatures who oh, know yeah. everything. And, if and, they don't and give who are you, there to serve you. Yeah, and if they don't, they're choosing not to. And it's such a mystery why you wouldn't give me the thing I needed. Then when you get older, you go, well, they didn't have it to give. So how could I be mad at somebody? He's learning how to give it now. He had nothing when I was five. But my mother gave a lot of it. So, and I do believe... Um, one great parent could do a ton. My mother really was my mother and my father. And she wore those hats and she worked her ass off. So I didn't, a kid growing up in a foster home, when they succeed, I'm like, holy shit, you are something special. Like, God damn, whatever grit is, you got it. I did have love and support and confidence beat into me by that woman. She just, you know, broke her back doing it because she didn't have help. You know, she raised three kids on her own. My sister was in and out of the hospitals. There was a lot of tension in our house. And right. there were really good moments, and then there were really bad moments. And in our house, if my mom was laughing, we were happy. If my mom was unhappy, we were unhappy. And sometimes the stakes of unhappy felt really intense. And we didn't want to see how far that could go, because we didn't, as kids, have a backup plan. There was nowhere else to go if this thing breaks. Right. And I always felt growing up that family... Some people are just raised that family is this like concrete box that's there forever. It's always been conditional for me. It's like, man, this, anything could break. So this unit could break and we could all just turn into individuals in a blink of an eye. So if my mom is tense, my brother and I created routines and that was, we need to break this tension to get her laughing so that she can remember how great all this is. And so we could get a laugh in nearly any situation. And my brother was always the older one, more of like the fake dad, and I was always the clown. So he could go like, mom, in one thing about the cleaning, blah, 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 look at me, and we, would make, we used to make this really intense eye contact, basically being like, let's find something here. And then something would come, and as soon as we would get the laugh, the tension would release, she would say, guys, I need a little help, the house is getting, and we'd all be like, of course. But that break of tension, was what I still do professionally. You get to set, people are trying to figure out what the scene is, you're going, you'll feel like, oh, this, this scene needs this. I know how to do that, I've been doing that forever. Boy, that, you know, there's a complexity there to your relationship with your work though, right. and, and being like hypersensitive to the tension. Totally. And, and that, it sounds like that was, like, it was a necessity to maintain your stability was to 
was to sort of check in on everybody's level of read the room. Uh, yeah, read the room. But I exactly. think the more the more actors and comedians I talk to, a lot of us had that because the stakes that you feel as a kid are different than the stakes that your your parents felt. So me at eight, it might have seemed life and death, and to my mom, she might have been like, "Honey, I had a headache." Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, chill out. But at, at eight, it felt so real. And if this is the thing I can do that helps, gladly do it. So when you came back to high school yeah. and you realized, oh, this is the thing I want to do, and you found yeah, the thing. you found that, did you have a plan? Did you have an, uh, no. uh, like a, Never. But a I still blueprint don't have, I still, or somebody, no. a mentor? But there's still not any sort of plan. For me, professor, I don't believe in, I don't believe in the five-year plan. I don't believe in where things are going to be. But I know during that period, and I think it was, I'd have to check with my mom because we haven't talked about the dropout period in a long time. And I believe she said, I need to do something creative. And it was right around that period I wrote like my first play. And it was about like a guy and his brother. It was basically stealing Bridge to Terabithia. The older brother gets cancer and I was crying my eyes out writing it, thinking of my brother and dog shit. But I would spend hours doing it. And I didn't show it to anyone but my mom. But it was like, oh, this is a, this is fun to do. It was the, the beginning of writing isn't homework. And then when I got to high school, Billy put me in that play and that worked. And then I started getting credit at school and teachers started liking me. And you know, girls came around and the kids who would sit around smoking joints and cigarettes, the corner kids, I wasn't part of that because I had a play, I had a show to do. So I can't get high because I might not remember my lines. So I would have like, if I was in a show, I'd be pretty straight and pretty hardworking because I was really nervous about that show. That's what you want as a parent. You want your kid to find something that they're fired up that about. they are fired up about because it's like those who don't find the passion, passion something agreed. will, they'll just kind of, you know, Meander. seep into the woodwork or they'll, sure. they'll get swept up by the stream or whatever agreed. is interesting in that, in that moment. That's and, right. And, and then that passion for me it is still there. It just keeps narrowing down to what that passion is. Right. At first, it was like, I'll, like I really love an actor's actor. I love an actor who comes on set and they're just fucking happy to be there. And I'll sometimes hear a director say something to somebody where I'm like, I'll like try to check in, like, you good? And they're like, man, I'm just so happy. So I have so much gratitude. I love seeing that. That's not my story. I don't get there and be like, thank you for the opportunity to wake up at 6 a.m. and work for 12 hours. My thought is like, it's dark. I got here, I'm tired, what are we doing? But once the thing gets cooking, if it's good, I'm like, man, thanks, I really love that. Like when a director's good, like right now we got this great director this week, and I'm like, man, I could hug this guy. Because I'm like, you know what you're doing and you're pushing us and you're getting good stuff and you're seeing things in the scene I didn't see. Like, thanks, man. And we should say, you're talking about Stumptown. Stumptown, yeah. Which, ironically, you've, you always wanted to be in that Cheers world, and now totally. you're basically Sam Malone on Stumptown. I mean, you're, <laughs> totally. you're running a bar, you own it. That's where the comparison ends. But I think you know when you find... That's right. You, you, when you find your place. Well, Stumptown for me was uh, the shows like NYPD Blue growing up. Right. And one-hour network dramas, you know, Hill Street Blues. With and, humor in it, like with, Moonlighting. That's right. Moonlighting is exactly right. But also had grit and had like yeah. a, a certain tone and a look. Like when I was talking about your show, there's a tone to it. There's a tone the first second you come on. I like those one-hour shows growing up that they would just feel different. They'd be like horns in the theme song. And you're like, oh, we're going here. Right. And then they're lit in a certain way, and the actors act in a certain way, and there's weird profile shots. 
Yeah, and, and like, Stumptown has that. I Stumptown mean, has even it. in the even in the graphics, the way yep. the scenes change. That's right. They're doing like the that graphic thing. novel. And the other thing for me was Kobe Smulders because apart from being a super talent, I did a ton of homework on her, and everything I got from everybody, top to bottom, was kind to everybody, uh, nicest person you could work with, shockingly professional, cares about everybody. And I really wanted to work with somebody who's the number one. If I'm going to be on that second tier, I need to really trust the instincts and the humanity of our number one. And she's it. And so being there, I'm like, man, that was a really solid choice because this woman's running things, but she's like really cool and nice and like keeps everyone together. And I'm like, man, I'm happy to ride this one out. Yeah. And the sad thing is the critics and the audience never see the difference. So it's all selfish. So if critics all turn on me and end up saying I'm a hack, but I get to keep working, I just won't read it. If people don't want to see my stuff, well, that makes it difficult because I won't be able to keep making it. But I'm really not doing it for people's approval. I'm doing it because I like when it feels right. right. So if I do a project and it doesn't feel right, and my days don't feel right, and I can't fucking connect with this human, and I don't get the right, and the director and I never found a groove, I don't care if that project wins awards. It wasn't good for me. If I do it and it feels right and people don't like it, I do believe deep down they missed it. This is a weird jump, but my character's a bartender. In this. Yes. My character was a bartender in New Girl. I never gave that thought until I did press for Stumptown. And everyone's asking. And like, what's the thought on it? I'm like, the thought is it's a fucking set. I've never made a real drink. If they, my characters had to make Manhattans for years, I don't know what's in it, and I don't care. When they bring in specialists who's like, do you want a tutorial? No, I'm not a real bartender. <laughs> you know, I like shooting in bars, because it's simple to do your coverages in. <laughs> Someone's sitting, someone's standing, and you're like this. Yeah. You know what, I don't want to be an accountant? Because I don't like the fluorescent lighting, and I don't want to wear a tie. I don't want to wear tight pants. I'd rather wear clothes like this. I like that lighting, I like bar lighting. I like shooting scenes in there. Mostly bar scenes are honest because people are drinking. We're not. It's tea. Looking like whiskey. But you're doing real scenes. I don't want to be a doctor. I don't like those lights. I don't like that look. I don't want to walk around in scrubs for 12 hours, five days a week. And I don't want to be dealing with a co-star who's laying on a bed pretending to be dying. <laughs> Pass. Very I don't specific. Want, I don't want my weird like, hands covered in gloves and that sticky fake glue. Yeah, you don't want to wear that. You don't want to wear I, that. I don't want to have to try to do an emotional scene where I'm going like, and the words which I'll never pronounce correctly of like, give me the blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Carol, I'm in love with you. I don't want to do that. Let's just do a bar. <laughs> but so like that, I'm like, that's the stuff people care about? And the press assumption is, is he worried he's repeating himself? Yeah, you are going back. Why? Going back? Who gives a shit? I'll play a bartender a million times. I don't care. I'm not a bartender. <laughs> Your character is similar to that. They're all similar. They look like me and they sound like me. <laughs> Guess what, asshole? It's me. Every time you see John Malkovich, it's him. You know what's He's funny then though? doing different levels of that. Your clarity about this very subject actually probably increases the chance that you're going to get more of those characters. <laughs> right. <laughs> because it is true that that is sort of the most logical uh, buddy approach to the whole thing. <laughs> right. And then you get these logical buddy guys. <laughs> so you're sort of, it's sort of like a self-perpetrating. Yeah, that's right. It'll happen over and over. But yeah. I'm like, great. And it, fine. And they're great places to shoot. Yeah. Like the bar and sometimes we're shooting in, it's the most beautiful lighting of our whole show. I'll see the shots they do. Oh, the shit looks gorgeous. Well, it's built-in lights. We've got a 360, we can shoot 360 degrees. Everywhere works in it. 
they built it to be gorgeous. You know, I've talked to a lot of actors, and I don't think I've ever talked to someone who is making character choices based on where the lighting is nicest. <laughs> I, yeah, that's fair. Fascinating. That's fair. Well, it's also, uh, people asked about this character where they say, when I was doing Stemtown, what do you like about Grey? And Grey as a character, which is funny, I talked to Greg Rucka, who wrote the comic, and I go, we were all meeting at Comic-Con or one of these press things, and I go, all right, Greg, I really like your comic. I read all three of them. I go, I don't see a lot in the Grayson character. What do you see in him? I was like, help me. And he goes, can I be honest? He goes, I don't have a lot for Gray. And I was like, yeah, I didn't see a lot. He's like, you're going to have to create a lot with Gray. And I was like, great. Do you have any input? And he was like, run wild. So when I was doing press and they're asking, what do you like about him? Well, right now there's nothing to like. <laughs> but what I like about him is he exists in a one-hour drama. The showrunner has told me, we're going to start one way, but every character lies and you get to keep twisting and turning. The tops are very collaborative, so I can have like a weird thought of where I see them. I can pitch to them, and they'll say like, we're going to incorporate that in. I like the, uh, Kobe's our number one. I like the look of the show, and I like the way the show works with my lifestyle. So when I'm doing press, I never understand the questions. I'm like, right now, I signed the dotted line. <laughs> what are you talking, where does he work? Who gives a fuck? What do I like about him? Who gives a fuck? I'm here. <laughs> right? You're a press agent's dream. <laughs> what I hear you saying is that it's that same thing of that desire of wanting to be in those sets and wanting to do Joe Swanberg movies is that you don't know what happens and that's the joy of it for 100%. you. hundred percent. You want to see what happens. I want to see what happens. Well, I think that's why I'm a fan of yours and I, I don't know if I've quite articulated this before, but I think it's because I don't know exactly where you're going to go but the humanity you put into the characters makes me feel like, oh, I would do that too, or I would, I understand that logic. Thanks, man. And there's a depth there that I really like watching. And uh, I'll say what I said at the beginning, which is, you know, sorry I maybe <laughs> was focusing on the, on the girl in the pretty dress. <laughs> Keep doing it, man. <laughs> That's where you should be focused. <laughs> Um, but thank you too, man. I'm a fan also, and I'm, uh, it's fun to do this show. You, uh, you do a great interview. Well, I appreciate you watching it, and I appreciate you being on it. Yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, folks. That's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you want to check out more of Jake's work, he's all over TV land. You can see him on his new show, Stumptown, on ABC every week. And you can check out all seven seasons of New Girl on Netflix. And if you want to dig deeper, I highly recommend the Joe Swanberg movies, Digging for Fire, Drinking Buddies, and Win It All. Then if you want some high-level box office entertainment, check Jake out in The Mummy. He's the guy nearly blowing up next to Tom Cruise. And then when you're done with all that, check out offcamera.com. You may not find Tom Cruise there, but you're going to find over 210 episodes of Off Camera with some of the most iconic, artistic, and well-known artists in the world today. That's right, we've been doing this show for a long time now, and we really appreciate you tuning into the podcast. As a matter of fact, if you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, I don't know why you haven't, because when you subscribe... Each new episode shows up in your feed every week, and you can stay up to date with the show. We are also a television show, and you can see what you've been hearing by going to DirecTV's Audience Network or AT&T's Uverse. 
We're on every Monday night, Wednesday nights, and we're also sprinkled throughout the week, so check your local listings. Now, if you don't have DirecTV and you still want to see the television show, you can go to offcamera.com and you can get our television subscription package. And for just $4.99 a month, you can have access to every show we've ever done in brilliant, high-definition black and white to watch on any device, anytime, as many times as you like. It's a great deal, and I highly recommend checking it out. So dive into the world of off-camera and send me an email and tell me what you think. I'm Sam at offcamera.com, and I love hearing from people who are getting into the show and finding value in it. And uh, I also love hearing guest suggestions. I give bad advice. I love recipes. I love hearing stories about old motorcycles, skateboards, you know, just anything you want to talk about. Send me an email, or better yet, go to social media and tell the world why you like off-camera so much. And share your feelings about what guests we should have on and that kind of thing. You can find us at Off Camera Show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And if you go to my Instagram page, you can see a lot of behind-the-scenes pictures from this show. And we do a lot of photographs of each guest, so it's kind of a cool way to see what we're doing each week and find out who the next guest is. So check all that out. I want to thank everybody that works on this show each week. Nathan Shields, Crawford Shippey, Sasha Snow, Michaela Galvin, and Kara Johnson. We've had these folks for a long time together helping me make this show and couldn't do it without them. And I mostly want to thank you for tuning in each week and for finding the show and for continuing to support us. We'll keep making them as long as you keep listening. So thank you for tuning in. See you next time off camera.